brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go again, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and let me be the first to say that sometimes the simplicity of natural cures and healing techniques can make them seem far too good to be true and even a bit silly sounding. How could everyday things like water and light really be enough to keep us healthy and stave off the nasty viruses and complex conditions that seem to be plaguing us? Is diet seriously a bigger factor than genetics in our well-being? If these natural techniques are so simple and the results are so proven, how can this information stay so hidden? Of course, these are questions we're all going to have, but if you dig a bit deeper, you often realize that these feelings are just residue from living in the Rockefeller medicine system. A giant, out-of-control behemoth that puts profits above people, crushes alternatives with great vengeance and furious anger, controls the system of education and certification within the medical space, has sucked up hundreds of billions of dollars, and has produced very little in its century-long lifespan. And when we zoom out on the human story, we can see that not only is there a long history of successful herbalists, holistic doctors, and positive results from these off-the-radar modalities, but also it makes a lot of sense that fine-tuning the building blocks of life would be more effective than petrochemicals, invasive surgeries, and radiation exposure. And today we're talking to Mark Sloan, a guy who knows these things all too well, as he lost his mother to the medical system when he was only 12 years old, And as sad and tragic as that is, it also sent him on a lifelong quest to understand how our backwards medical system works, what answers are out there that aren't being talked about, and specifically, how the cancer industry has sold us lies that cost lives. He now runs the popular and boldly named website, endalldisease.com, where he posts routine blogs, videos, and podcasts about his findings. He's also the author of several books, including... The Cancer Industry, Crimes, Conspiracy, and the Death of My Mother, Cancer, The Metabolic Disease Unraveled, and the international number one best-selling book, Red Light Therapy, Miracle Medicine. So let's get into it. Detailing the lies of a corrupt system and living with a purpose, the cancer conspiracy exposer and red light therapy renegade Mark Sloan, my man, welcome to the higher side. Thanks, Greg. It's good to be here. 
Yeah, this is a real pleasure. You're clearly a man on a mission, and you definitely know your stuff. I mentioned the passing of your mother, and I know that's a huge part of your journey. Maybe we can talk about that a bit, because I think a lot of people probably have stories similar to what you saw happening with her, and it really provides the context for the person you are today. So you even go so far as to say that her story might qualify as murder. Well, tell us a bit about what happened. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody who hasn't lost somebody to cancer at this point is the exception. So I think we can all relate to this kind of thing. For me, when I was 11 years old, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And at the time, she didn't have any symptoms. And I don't know if people know that, but most people diagnosed with cancer don't have any symptoms. And at the time, I really didn't even know what cancer was. So never did the thought occur to me that she might die from this. My dad just sat my sister and I down on the couch one day and he told us and I never really felt sad about it. I felt hopeful because he told us that, you know, they caught it early. They're going to get her in for surgery and radiation and it's going to be all good. So I believed him. And like I said, never did I think that it was going to lead to her dying. When it ended up happening was my aunt Kim came down for a couple months. So we loved her and that was fantastic. So it just kind of felt like a vacation almost expecting that, you know, her mother would return healthy. So the cancer that she had was cervical cancer, and it was literally the size of your baby fingernail on her cervix. And so really, it doesn't seem like much of a threat, something that tiny, but they said, you know what, we're going to go in, we're going to cut it off, and they're going to radiate the area just to make sure it doesn't come back. And so at that time, there were cutbacks at the hospital. So there, for about six months there, you couldn't really go back for a checkup about six months later and then they did and that's when the doctor said you know we found the cancer had metastasized or spread to her hip area so now we're going to give her chemotherapy and after her first treatment I mean she was in the hospital so she didn't seem that well no one ever is I don't think sitting in a hospital all day but after she got chemotherapy it was without a doubt her health went rapidly downhill just a dramatic decline and I think looking back on it that's undoubtedly the point where she started dying so a few months after that pretty brutal months too it was like suffering for her it was not only did she die it was like the most painful and uh, it was a terrible experience for her and terrible for me and my family to have to watch her go through what she did it was almost like torture so that's kind of how it ended and then on the day it ended my dad sat my sister and I and our aunt down on the couch told us the news and I was just completely shocked. I remember the way I dealt with it. I just held my breath. I don't think I could handle that information. So I didn't allow myself to feel. Mm. So I held my breath and I kind of kept that pattern for oh, 10, 15 years before I even, before I allowed that, the feelings associated with that to seep in. So I was kind of living life just completely suppressed. So it, yeah, it completely destroyed me basically. And it wasn't until I was about 29 years old that I realized, you know, enough of this being a victim. My mother gave me a story that could inspire others and the mind that could find and discover the solutions to a problem that the world is literally dying to know. So I changed what happened. I reframed it in my mind. And I realized that if I do the work, look out there at all the evidence that exists and compile it together, maybe the answers are already out there. They're just not being acknowledged. After all, the cancer industry makes $126 billion a year. 
So that was my hypothesis going in. And I was like, if the answers are out there, they will be found. And I knew that if I found the answers, put them in a book and compiled it all together and advanced the knowledge for the everyday person about cancer so we could put this disease behind us, that would transform my mother's legacy from a victim of cancer to a hero who inspired her son to write the book that saved lives and changed the world. Mm. I think that is so well said, man. And it's exactly the kind of approach I think people should have in these sorts of situations. And I suppose your conclusion is that her death might be more a result or consequence of the medical system and these procedures themselves rather than cancer. Is that right? Well, before I put a bias over the cancer industry book I wrote, I wrote it in a way to be as subjective as possible, at least in the chapters on surgery, radiotherapy, and chemotherapy. I have a chapter on each and compiled all, like literally hundreds of studies in there. So the purpose of that was not to tell people how to think, but to show them, like, look at all this information. Here's full disclosure. I've done my absolute best to get everything in here for you to look at and for you to decide because we need an informed population. We need people to decide beforehand, before they're put in that situation, whether they want these therapies or not. So first I will say that. And then I also put my conclusions in there as well. And yeah, I definitely, I struggle with this a little bit because is it murder for profit or is it suicide by ignorance? Mm. I mean, it's like, yeah, there is a deception here happening, I think, with the cancer industry. The idea that injecting mustard gas into our sickest among us is going to help and heal them, I think, is insane. So there is a deception, but there's also never been a better time or more access to the information that's out there. You know, So there's no more excuses, especially now that this book has been written. So at the same time, I put the responsibility, I guess, on people. So I think it's more of a situation of suicide by ignorance at this point than murder for profit, although you can make the case for both. Mm. Yes, man. Sometimes the truth is very raw and hard to accept, but I think you're making a great point that we have some personal responsibility in this. We aren't just being babysat by the system, so to put all our trust in it is probably a mistake, especially since it is a for-profit system. And I want to get into cancer you know, deeper, a little bit further down the line, but just to add to this a bit, you have several quotes in the cancer book from doctors in the past who have made plenty of statements that surgery for cancer is ineffective, dangerous, and even some go so far as to say barbaric, and that this time will be seen as a medical dark age when our most common practice was to cut out tumors. And that's just really interesting because I don't think people realize that these kind of quotes would go back decades. And they do, right? Yeah, even more than decades. We're talking hundreds of years here. Like Alfred Armand Louis-Marie Velpo, who was a surgeon and he was born in 1795. And one of his quotes was, the disease always returns after removal and operation only accelerates its growth and fatal termination. Hmm. So it has been long looked down upon surgery for cancer and carving out tumors has been looked down upon for literally hundreds of years and it was only in the 1900s, mainly like after World War II, where this became just accepted as standard practice. Mm -hmm. Man, it is a tragic story, your mother's, and of course many other people are going to have similar stories. This 
modality for treating cancer has affected many, many tens of hundreds of thousands of people. And in your case, as you have said, her death gave your life direction and a purpose. And in a way, her death was the gift of a compelling story to push you further along this path. I'm a big believer in that sort of thing, too. And I'm sure we'll talk more about the cancer industry as we go along. But my primary motivation today was to get deeper into red light therapy, something you know quite a bit about. And it really does seem like magic with all the supposed cancer cures and natural remedies that are out there. How did red light therapy become such a high priority to you? How did this get on your radar? Well, you make a good point, first of all, about the fact that it sounds like magic. When I tell people about it, I think people are so conditioned by the medical industry to believe that any medicine is going to have a whole list of side effects and won't work very well, that when they hear about red light therapy, I mean, it's been studied to date. There have been over 50,000 scientific and clinical studies on it, and not one has reported a single side effect. So that alone is kind of shocking to people and kind of makes them disbelieved already let alone what it can actually do for people. And as far as how I got into this, well, I've always been interested in health ever since, especially since my mom died, and especially for myself, really. That was kind of the main reason because there was so much trauma associated with losing my mom at age 11, and then just going through life blocked up like that, it just really destroyed me. So I was basically on a quest to try to heal myself. I felt like just something was not right. I wasn't healthy and I knew there was something better out there for me. And that if I worked on myself and tried to find different therapies and the ultimate diet that would allow me to heal, I would feel differently. I felt like I've always had the suspicion that other people are not feeling the way I am in life. So I always wanted to heal myself. And anyways, that's kind of how I came across red light therapy. I've tried a number of fad diets from vegan to the Ogenous Vonderplanets all raw meat, honey butter diet to like a paleo style diet. And now what I have today, which is based on the research of Dr. Ray Pete, and it is through him that I was first introduced to the concept of red light as a therapeutic agent. And about 2014 is when I think I first discovered red light. Right on. And yes, your book right on the cover has a quote from Dr. Ray Pete, where it says penetrating red light is possibly the fundamental anti-stress factor for all organisms. And that's pretty blunt. And to elaborate on that and to understand how something like red light therapy could work, I guess we need to have a better context for disease and what is really making us sick. You write that the key is to understand cellular health and that red light therapy actually addresses the root cause of all disease. What are these fundamentals that we need to understand? What are the mechanisms that explain how red light therapy works? Well, it's important to know, first of all, I think I would say that right now there are over, I think it's over 32,000 officially classified diseases. And if that's the case, then it's obviously really complicated. And yeah, we need doctors to interpret this and to figure out the best course of action. But in reality, and I heard this way of looking at it first from a doctor named Raymond Francis, when I read his book, I think it was around 2007, and his concept was that there's only one disease. There's not all these diseases. This reductionist principle where all these individual diseases require individual treatments. What he was saying is that there's only one disease, and that's a malfunctioning cell. So the, really, the key to understanding health is understanding 
what causes a cell to malfunction and what causes a cell to function properly and how to take a malfunctioning cell and to assist it in healing so it can again function properly. So that is why I focus and narrow things down on the cell because we are just a collection of cells. Some people say like 70 trillion. I don't know how they could know that, but we'll go with that number. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, when you focus down on cellular health, what does a cell need to function properly? And I think the most simplistic way to put it is that it's a matter of energy. So everybody knows that we need nutrients, we need vitamins, and we need minerals, proteins, carbs, fats, all these things. But I don't think they necessarily know why. So taking that a step further and understanding what these are being used for is critical for understanding this and for being able to really take care of your own health without the help of anyone else because then you can understand how diet relates to it and different medicines can help you do exactly what you want. And so when it comes to minerals and vitamins, what they're used for is a process inside the cell called metabolism, which is basically energy production. So health really is a matter of energy, just as if when you woke up in the morning, you're in bed, and if you had no energy, if you had literally zero, and you weren't able to get out of bed, you would die right there in your bed. And I think that often happens to old people. And as far as cellular health goes, the same thing exists for that. It's like a cell has all sorts of vital functions from detoxification and repair and regeneration that it needs to perform, and it needs energy to do that. Every single cell needs energy. And each cell, the energy that they produce, is what you use for your body. So this is why it's amazing that we can focus down and scale down to the cellular level and you can understand the entire body through that. So the key to health is a robust, high metabolism. Hmm. And red light therapy is a powerful way that will get you there. Right. I think this is really important to wrap our heads around because it's a complete inversion, really, of what our traditional medical 101 education is going to tell us where it's all about viruses. And as you've said, they got students and scientists studying genetics because that is a dead end road and metabolic research would expose all these answers that they try to keep quarantined. I think that's a really interesting point because I'm sure some people's question would be, well, how is this not being routinely picked up on and that's a big reason why wouldn't you say oh yeah absolutely the funding and the research is so basically if you're a scientist and you want to get funding for a study you have to apply to an institute like the nih or somebody who's going to give you money who gives money to researchers for studies and unless you're looking for some kind of genetic explanation or they also like receptors so if you're searching for a receptor explanation for something They'll give out big money for that because that's in the same paradigm. And the medical industry is completely committed to that because that allows them to have so many different pills, so many different products. And yeah, so they're committed to that paradigm. And I don't think they will switch because what actually happens or what you start to realize when you realize most health problems are related to genetic deficiencies, the same maybe 10, 20 medicines that exist and 10, 20 foods are the most powerful for virtually every disease. Hmm. And it's incredibly empowering. The truth is always simple and beautiful. And it is in this case. There's no exception. Well said. And it is just so sad that we're so conditioned to believe that without a complex pill or a scalpel is anything really being done. And that's really the 
thing we have to overcome with this and the whole case to be made for red light therapy. But to talk about the history of it, this isn't really a new discovery. It is just a hidden one. And it's been around for a long time, hasn't it? Well, yeah, I guess the inventor of red light therapy would be God, if you believe in God, whoever created the sun. <laughs> if you think it was the Big Bang, then I guess that explosion, normal explosions destroy things, but that explosion created red light therapy. Hmm. Anyways, <laughs> everybody knows, or most people know, that the sun provides vitamin D, so that's a portion of the spectrum of radiation that comes off the sun would be in the ultraviolet range, and so ultraviolet light interacts in your skin with the cholesterol and converts it into vitamin D. Of course, if you get too much of that, although vitamin D is an essential nutrient, so some is important, if you get too much, you get burnt. It has a similar effect to ionizing radiation, like in x-rays or radiotherapy. But what people don't know about the sun is that around 60% of the radiation that comes from the sun is in the red and near-infrared end of the spectrum. Red light being visible and near-infrared light you can't actually see. The visible spectrum that your eyes can see is between 400 and 700 nanometers. Anything above or below that, you can't see. And I think what we can see there, the 400 and 700, is like less than 1% of all that exists. So hmm. just goes to show you how mysterious and fascinating this world is that we're living in. And there's so much more than we can see. Amen. And you even note in the book that Egyptians had solariums with colored glass to harness specific parts of the spectrum to heal disease. So as a healing mechanism, people have known about this connection between light and healing for about as long as civilization's been around. Yeah, absolutely. In the book, I write that ancient Egyptians, they constructed solariums and they actually put colored glass which would filter out all the other wavelengths. So if you had like red glass, it would filter out all the wavelengths but the red, and they would harness specific colors of that spectrum for medicinal purposes. And it wasn't just the Egyptians, also the Greeks and Romans. They emphasized mainly like the thermal effects of light from the sun. So that would be, that's a different mechanism, but it is medicinal nonetheless. Niels Ryberg Finson, he's known today as the father of modern phototherapy. And in 1903, he won the Nobel Prize for successfully treating people with ultraviolet light, and he treated tuberculosis with that. Hmm. So we have Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, the same guy who brings you your cornflakes. He was deeply involved with light healing, and he would use incandescent light bulbs and arc lights. So I guess in the past or in ancient times, they would have to use light from the sun and do what they can with that. Then with the invention of the light bulb, that allowed us to bring it indoors and kind of get a little more precise with things. So Dr. John Harvey Kellogg wrote a book called Light Therapeutics, and he talked about all of the diseases and things he had been treating people with successfully, including diabetes, obesity, chronic fatigue, insomnia, baldness, cachexia, and a whole bunch of other health problems. And that was using light bulbs and arc lights. The arc lights, which give off a lot of UV, and the light bulbs do have red in it but it is also a full spectrum. So it's like you have every color in the rainbow in there. And interestingly, blue light actually has the opposite effect of red. So today's devices where you can harness a specific wavelength is a lot different than an incandescent light bulb. Although incandescent light bulbs are certainly a lot better than a fluorescent bulb, for example. If you fractionate the light from a fluorescent bulb, you realize it's literally almost all blue. There's almost no red in those. 
So there's a little practical step for anybody who has compact fluorescent lights in their house. If you replace it with incandescent light bulbs or I know they're a bit of a, a hog and I think they're even banned in California, aren't they? I'm not sure. I did recently buy some on eBay to try to experiment with my home lighting and I did get them. So it's a, it's possible. Okay, right on. <laughs> I just, I remember hearing something like that years ago, maybe five, six years that they banned incandescent because it was such a hog on energy and then they made mandatory fluorescent. And I was kind of angry at that because I'm like, we're using compact fluorescent making that mandatory. Meanwhile, they put mercury in there and they emit harmful radio frequencies and it's completely blue light. And in reality, you have LED lights available as well, which can give out red so they're healthier and they actually use less energy and they don't use mercury. So like that's a silly solution to mandate that people use compact fluorescent when LEDs are available. <laughs> Anyways, that's a bit of a tangent. No, it's all great information, man. And when it comes to the studies and the papers on red light therapy's effectiveness, there are plenty. I think you say there's over 50,000? Uh, yeah. When I looked at it last, that was, I think it was late 2018. So I'm sure there's more because red light research has basically exploded in recent years. At least in the West, it has been done. Uh, Russian research, they've been doing it for a lot longer. But in the West, they didn't really catch on until the year 2000. And then there's been an exponential increase in publications done on red light therapy since then. So, yeah. As of today, yeah, there's over 50,000 scientific and clinical studies on red and near-infrared light therapy. Hmm. Yeah, it does seem like the cracks in the Rockefeller medicine monopoly are starting to grow. I don't know if it's the internet. I'm sure that's a component of it, but maybe people are just starting to see after this century-long arc that this isn't yielding results. Maybe it's just something intuitive. But it's a beautiful thing to see, and this is a huge part of that breakdown of the corrupt system. And I wanted to ask you, what are a couple of the go-to studies you like to cite for people that make the case that this stuff really works? Because I'm sure even if some of the listeners are on board, they might want to share this with someone far more skeptical, maybe our aging parents, for example. And I hope we can win them over as well. So... Give us a little bit more information about these studies themselves, ones you find most impressive. So there's a bunch of different ways to realize the efficacy of this treatment. And the beautiful thing about health, and this is why I really like health and nutrition and red light therapy, is that you can actually put these to the test and find out for yourself. So it's like you could read studies all day, and even though something looks compelling, you never really know until you try it. Mm -hmm. So because red light therapy is so cheap and accessible, a lot of like tannic salons have their fluorescent tube lit red light tanning beds. So they're all over the place. Even some gyms have them. But anyways, as far as research goes, there's been a lot of amazing studies and I have listed, I think, over 70 different diseases and conditions. Although I maintain that there's probably no disease or condition that cannot at least benefit from red light. Let's look at one on fat loss, for example. So there's a lot of good red light research coming out of Brazil. And in 2015, a team from there took 64 obese women and randomly assigned them to two groups. So one group was exercise training plus phototherapy following exercise. And the other one just got exercise alone with no phototherapy. And so they were working out three times a week over a 20-week period. And then after they assessed their fat loss. And so they measured before and after as well. And what were the results? Well, the women who received the near-infrared light therapy following exercise literally doubled 
the amount of fat loss compared to exercise alone. So it literally like melts fat. And the way it does this is by increasing your metabolism. So if you apply red light to your body for, I'm not exactly sure how long, but you could probably say at least for the rest of the day, you're going to be burning more calories at rest than you would normally. So that's what an increased metabolism does. And you can see the results for fat loss. It's been used for also hair regrowth. That's a big, <laughs> a big area as well. When you're under stress, if you're under chronic stress, one of the first things to go is hair because it's just not necessary for survival. Another thing to go is reproduction. So we see in our society, our highly stressed, highly stressful society that a lot of people have fertility problems and that would be why. So basically in hair loss, what's happening there is your hair follicles, which their job is to produce hair, and they're obviously not functioning properly. They're not producing hair. So red light puts it back on track. It gives it the energy it needs. And lots of really great studies have shown that it can actually increase hair growth, whether you want it to or not. <laughs> I have here a review on the subject. Okay, so red light for hair growth. There was an American and Hungarian review conducted in 2014 on Treatment for hair loss with red and near-infrared laser therapy. So they looked at a whole bunch of studies, compiled them, and what did they find? Well, here's a quote. Low-level laser therapy, which is red light therapy administered with a laser for hair growth in both men and women, appears to be both safe and effective. The optimum wavelength, coherence, and dosimetric parameters remain to be determined. So what they're saying there is that the research indicates that it is effective and it can help you regrow hair, although we don't have the exact wavelengths and frequencies and the different treatment times nailed down yet for the optimal hair regrowth but the effect is there hmm. <laughs> well regrowing hair and losing a little bit of fat are two things that i would appreciate quite a bit <laughs> but you have this long list of conditions that you think red light therapy is effective for and it makes sense because if we're addressing some root cause further up the chain which would be you know, our metabolism and stress reduction and the lowering of the things like cortisol and, you know, the harmful chemicals we're producing versus increasing some of the positive ones. It makes sense that you could list all these things under the umbrella if you're addressing that root cause. And then you have the 10 that have clearly proven results, as you said, melts belly fat, accelerates wound healing increases bone density, increases testosterone, enhances brain function and memory, lowers anxiety and depression, eliminates acne, relieves pain, regrows hair, and works wonders on arthritis. And these are, I guess, a lot of seemingly random and unconnected conditions, but there must be that same connection between them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it all comes down to cellular health, like we were talking about. I wouldn't mind getting deeper into the mechanisms here, because I think once you understand the mechanisms, it actually begins to make sense. And it begins to, I would say, become a little bit less hard to believe why it's working. Cool. Yes, please lay it on us. Okay, so as far as like metabolism goes, if you dig into the details of that, it is unbelievably complex. I don't have cellular respiration and all of the intricacies memorized most biologists don't have that memorized either so if you wanted to you can make it really complex and i feel like this is my value in red light research and in cancer research i see myself as a translator so 
I've made it my mission to understand the complex research and boil it down simply so that anybody of any age can understand it. That is my goal, and you can decide if you think I succeeded at that or not. <laughs> but as far as cellular metabolism goes, it's basically a series of chemical reactions involving enzymes. So I don't know if you or your listeners remember the movie Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase. Sure. So when he puts the Christmas lights on his roof and just one bulb was burnt out. So when you have something wired in electrical theory, I guess if you have it wired in series, if one bulb is burnt out, the whole thing will not light up. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of metabolism in that way, the enzymes would be like the light bulbs. And as I said, it's minerals and it is vitamins that are used to create these enzymes. So if you are, for example, I have a, a very specific example of this one. One of the enzymes that is essential for cellular metabolism is called pyruvate dehydrogenase. And the nutrient required to make that is thiamine, which is vitamin B1. It's found most abundantly in liver, caviar, octopus, crab, lobster, beef, lamb, fish, cheese and eggs, and shellfish. So if you don't have any vitamin B1 whatsoever in your diet, your body will not be able to make this enzyme and you will not be able to use oxygen and your health will suffer. So, for example, some studies show that low levels of serum thiamine have been significantly associated with Parkinson's disease. And they actually do this in medical practice. They administer in hospitals thiamine sometimes to patients. And in this study, when they administer thiamine to Parkinson's disease patients, it improved their brain function and overall condition. A thiamine deficiency is also frequent in patients with heart disease. And then administering thiamine to them, people with heart disease, improves their heart function. So you are basically switching that light bulb back on and allowing that sequence of events which are necessary for energy production to continue and to flow all the way until the end point, which is ATP production. So ATP is the is said to be the energy currency of your body. What people don't talk about is another product of metabolism is water and the other product is carbon dioxide and that is that is one of the most underestimated things. Carbon dioxide is unbelievably important. And if you read the research on red light, there are theories as to its mechanisms. One thing they don't disagree on is the ATP production. So energy production, by applying red light to your cells, you're going to increase energy production and your available energy. And you can notice it in athletic performance and things like this. But what they don't talk about is the increase in carbon dioxide which is one of the most important things for your overall health. Have you heard of Dr. Konstantin Buteko? I have not. Okay, so he was a Russian scientist in the early 20th century, and he had an intense interest in like sophisticated medical diagnostics, and he had the, the best lab in the world. It was state-of-the-art equipment and facilities, and he was basically obsessed with finding out the cause of disease. He wanted to find if there was one single parameter in people who were sick and his extraordinary discovery that he made after a lifetime of research before he was ostracized and a few attempts were made on his life he discovered that all chronic diseases shared one thing in common and that was a lower level of carbon dioxide and it turns out the reason why co2 is so important it has been unnecessarily and unwarrantedly vilified in our society people are taught that it's a toxic waste product but if you look at there's something called the Bohr effect. That's a key principle to understand. 
So in your blood, oxygen is transported throughout the body by being bound to red blood cells. So that's red blood cells is also called hemoglobin. Mm-hmm. So that's how it's transported through your veins and capillaries. And your every single cell in your body needs oxygen. And I think a lot of people know that by now, especially for cancer. I'm trying to think here. I have a quote actually on that. Professor Arthur C. Guyton, he was the author of the best-selling medical textbook in the entire world called The Textbook of Medical Physiology. He said, like all diseases, suffering, and conditions are a result of the inability of cells to use oxygen. Hmm. And so how does that relate to carbon dioxide? Well, the Bohr effect. So as I was saying, the oxygen is transported through your body bound to red blood cells and if there is no co2 here's the key point if there's no co2 in the area when that oxygen is needed it will not unstick from that red blood cell so if co2 is present it will release the oxygen from the red blood cell and drive it into cells where it is needed but when you have a co2 deficiency you cannot use that oxygen even if it's present your cells can't use the oxygen and that was what dr otto warburg discovered about cancer is that a cancer cell even though the oxygen is present The mitochondria was damaged and it was unable to use it. Hmm. That's really fascinating. And I watched your video on the naked mole rat, which is really fascinating. Apparently, it's the one mammal that doesn't seem to age. And when they study it and they look at its environment and the levels of oxygen and carbon dioxide like you're talking about, this is a major factor. Like this ties in quite a bit, right? I mean, we can look at the naked mole rat and see these same principles at work. Yeah, absolutely. The naked mole rat is fascinating. And there are actually other creatures that do not age. But there was a study, I think it was in 2016, on the naked mole rat. And the researchers concluded that this defies everything we know about biology. The naked mole rat literally does not age. And it has many other incredible features When you compare it to other rats, which live on average two to two and a half years tops, the naked mole rat, the longest lived naked mole rat was over 30 years old. So its lifespan is 15 times greater than other rats. It doesn't feel pain when being burnt with acid. It reproduces from around six months when it hits puberty all the way to the grave. So there's no like point where it cannot reproduce from birth to the grave. It can withstand 30 minutes without oxygen, without having any brain damage. It's virtually immune to environmental toxins. And in its natural habitat, this is probably the most important one if you're interested in cancer, it is immune to cancer in its natural environment. Mm. And so it's like, if you, if, when you read the research on this, as recently as 2016, researchers say, you know, we have no idea why it's doing this. And when you investigate as to why, it's because they're looking for genetic explanations. And Dr. Ray Pete was the first person I've known to figure this one out. This is where I first learned about this concept of the naked mole rat. And it turns out that the naked mole rats, which live subterranean the entire lives, so they live underground their entire lives, and they plug the entrances to their burrows, and they live in colonies of about 75 to 300 other mole rats. So they dig around all day and they eat tubers. And no access to light, and even despite the light, they have all these incredible features. And the reason why is because when they plug their burrows, they carefully regulate the content of oxygen and carbon dioxide in their burrows. And so, whereas in the air you're breathing right now, likely, the oxygen content is almost 21%. In a mole rat burrow, it's been 
found to be around 6%. So they take down the oxygen level. And the CO2 in our air right now is extremely low. It's 0.04%. Just to give you a perspective, in your body, you want about 5%. So it's extremely low compared to what we need. So it makes it difficult. So increasing that would make it a lot more compatible with life of humans and obviously other creatures as well. So in the mole rat burrow, they increase the CO2 to around 7%. So oxygen is way down. CO2 is way up. And this affects their metabolism. So they have a really robust metabolism. And this is why they do not age because there's no aging or degeneration because their bodies are using oxygen so efficiently that they have no problems whatsoever with that. I think that is fascinating, man. And we get into some really wild subjects on other episodes of this show, legends of subterranean civilizations and all kinds of strange stuff. And the number one question is people always ask, well, I like the stories of people living underground either today or in the ancient past, but I can't entertain it seriously because without sunlight, how could anything live underground? And there might be a way, it seems. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So when you think of red light, the reason why it's so beneficial is not only because of the ATP, but what comes with the ATP. So it's increasing your carbon dioxide. And amazingly, even without red light or without any sunlight, as we can see from the naked mole rat and other creatures, in the absence of sunlight, as long as you have a high amount of carbon dioxide available, you can thrive in good health. And Dr. Ray Pete actually talks about another concept I just want to lay out because it's so incredible. Yeah. Most people probably have never heard of this and it's amazing. Most people look to outer space for interesting things, but I mean, it's a vacuum. We haven't found life out there and I don't even know if you can go to outer space to be honest, but <laughs> if you ask me, way more interesting than the concept of exploring space is exploring the oceans. Yeah. And one of the concepts that Dr. Ray Pete talks about is a champagne vent, which exists on the very bottom of the ocean and exudes pure streams of liquid carbon dioxide. And around it, I mean, because it's so deep, there is almost no light. And yet life flourishes around these vents. And the life that exists there cannot be accounted for by the little amount of light that's there. So in other words, it's the CO2 that is sustaining their lives by keeping the oxygen, the little oxygen that does exist there, keeps their cells working and functioning and using that oxygen properly and effectively. Wow, that's so interesting. And like you mentioned, CO2 is very vilified in our current society. And I'm sure there is a multitude of factors as to why, but it is really provocative that every time I seem to have someone exploring one of these things, it's the exact inverse of what is taught to everyone else, what we see on corporate media. It's just fascinating that it's not just a little off it's a complete 180 in most cases yeah absolutely i noticed that myself a little bit amazingly i'm gonna lay this one out there too hit me i don't think there will ever be a cure for cancer because it's kind of a process it's like a slow gradual degeneration from eating the wrong foods there are really specific reasons mainly unsaturated fats accumulating in your tissues over a lifetime of consuming them but If there ever were one single thing that would be a cure for cancer, that would be increasing your level of carbon dioxide in the body. And there are a number of ways of doing this. You can take a bath with a bath bomb. So a bath bomb is like baking soda with a little citric acid powder, and they combine it together. 
in a dry form, so it's not reacting together. But those two things will react, obviously, when you liquefy them. So you put it in the tub, and what you get is carbon dioxide bubbles. I'm not sure if you heard of Vernon Johnson. He lived in California. He had stage 3 prostate cancer. His doctor said, you got six months to live and you're going to die. And he didn't want chemotherapy or anything like that. His brother told him about baking soda or sodium bicarbonate as a cancer treatment. And literally in 10 days of treatment, he took, I would say on average, a couple tablespoons per day. 10 days later, he went back to his doctor. The cancer was completely gone. And the reason why is because when you consume sodium bicarbonate, the second it hits your stomach acid, it is converted into carbon dioxide. And that's what's medicinal about it. There's a Japanese study. I don't have the specifics on this, but it is in my book. It's in Cancer, the Metabolic Disease Unraveled near the end. And basically, they injected carbon dioxide directly into tumors, and they would go away, resolve themselves completely. So there are many different ways. I used to have a device that a friend of mine who's an engineer created a device called a carbogen generator. So carbogen is a really fascinating concept, too, that people need to know about. If you look into the work of Dr. Yandel Henderson in the early 20th century, all the way up until World War II ended, he actually had paramedics and firefighters administering carbogen to patients instead of pure oxygen at emergency scenes. And it was very, very effective, especially for children with jaundice. And it would heal people up like crazy. Uh And interestingly, now they give them pure oxygen. Oh, I didn't say what carbogen was. Carbogen is basically a mixture of either 5% CO2 supplemented into air or 95% oxygen with 5% CO2. So it's supplemental CO2 in air and you breathe it in through an oxygen mask. I used to have a device that did that. I hooked up my CO2 tank. And that was an interesting experience. I've got some interesting stories about that. But really, Yandel Henderson had people breathing that on emergency scenes. And then as soon as World War II ended, that all stopped. Even hospitals were using it. They stopped using it after then as well. And now they give them pure oxygen, which is interesting. It's one of the more popular ways that doctors kill people. Because when you take pure oxygen, it's actually pushing the carbon dioxide out of your body. So although you're getting more oxygen in there, you are unable to use it. Hmm. Weird, man. I definitely don't hear a lot of people talking about this, but you're making a really interesting case. And can you elaborate a little bit on those interesting experiences you've had that you mentioned? I mean, I'm sure people are going to be curious when you drop something like that. (laughs) Very true. Okay, yeah. So I'm a pretty avid rollerblader and I used to drive limousine. Now I work full time on my website online. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. It was a big leap. It was scary at first, but unbelievable. I uh, forced me to bear down and work harder, and now I feel like I got a really good momentum going. Mm. Anyways, when I would go to Toronto, I'd drive people to like Raptors games or concerts, and I live an hour away from Toronto, so people would rent a limo. I'd drive them there, and then I would have like three or four hours free time. So when I got this device, I was like, yes, this is a perfect opportunity because in my free time, I often rollerblade right by the water on Lakeshore there. And so I really knew my ability as far as rollerblading goes, and especially on that route too. So I'm like, this is a perfect opportunity to assess if carbogen can affect my athletic performance compared to without it. So before I went to work that night, I think it was 10 minutes of breathing in around 2% supplemental CO2 in air. And when I went to Toronto, I laced out my skates. And it was amazing. I literally sprinted 
never having to slow down at all. I felt like I was accelerating the entire way for like 10 kilometers. And the amazing part was this, by the end of it, I felt no need at all to breathe out of my mouth. So you know how like you'd be panting usually when you sprint? Yeah. I was breathing completely out of my mouth. I was breathing hard out of my nose, but never did I need to breathe out of my mouth at all. So it was incredible. And I literally accelerated the whole way. So indeed, the way I interpret that and the way it works is by having a high level of CO2, you're preventing lactic acid from being produced. Lactic acid is anyone who lifts weights knows like that pump you get in your muscle. It's not really a good thing, actually. Lactic acid lowers your immune system. And it also increases hyperventilation, which decreases CO2 because you're breathing it out. So by increasing your CO2, you're decreasing the production of lactic acid and postponing the point where your cells can't use oxygen. So you're helping your cells use oxygen for a longer period of time before they begin to produce lactic acid, hence why I did not have to slow down at all and had incredible athletic performance enhancement from that. Amazing, man. And I'm really interested in this. This kind of does relate to the way some of the red light therapy stuff is talked about, especially in the area of melting belly fat and boosting testosterone and increasing muscle mass and lowering muscle fatigue and that whole realm of athletic performance. The results are pretty mind-blowing, but apparently red light therapy is so effective for athletes that in Brazil, they considered trying to find a way to ban it. It's a very hard thing to ban light, but they were actually calling it light doping. It was so effective. Is that right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The Brazilians are all over the research on red light for athletic performance in pretty much every sport. They're doing great work down there. And yeah, indeed, at the end of some studies, even Dr. Michael Hamblin from Harvard, he's been researching red light for decades now. And at the end of their study, they basically put in a little note, like kind of a nudge to athletic associations whether they should keep this legal or not. It's so incredibly effective for athletic performance that, you know, they're giving them a little hint as to whether they want that to keep that legal or not. Although, let's be honest, I mean, I think steroids saved baseball. Like the athletic <laughs> associations, they want their athletes to be big and strong and something that people don't see every day because that brings in the fans so to be honest i don't think they want to ban it and it's a good thing i think if there's any top athletes not using red light therapy right now and you think that they're good their potential is a lot greater than what you're seeing yeah it's really kind of fascinating because i think in one of those brazilian studies it improved endurance by a factor of three which is so crazy. People who are runners could just run three times as hard and as far without that fatigue. And it's just so wild. And maybe to clarify for people listening who are just taking in all this new information, we're kind of jumping between red light therapy and CO2 levels in the body. But these things are connected, right? Absolutely. And same with cancer. So it's kind of interesting. They all coalesce in a way. And yeah, you could consider red light therapy. They don't talk about this in the research because CO2 is, I don't know, I think it's its not politically correct to talk about because everyone's convinced that it's some kind of waste product. But that is at least as important as the increased ATP production from red light as far as mechanisms go. So CO2 is definitely a big part of it. Hmm. So I also told you that I had a personal interest in red light therapy because I've been deaf in my right ear since I was three 
And even if I can't repair that specifically, I also have the general hearing loss of someone who's gone to a lot of loud concerts and all that jazz. So maybe I'm at like 40, 35% capacity and moving the needle in any regard would be pretty profound. What have you found about red light therapy working for hearing loss? Yeah, so I think you told me that you lost your hearing when you were in your right ear from meningitis when you were three. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, yeah. So I'm glad you asked that because before that point, I hadn't really in depth looked into how hearing works and how red light could affect that. But I actually made a full video on it. It was my very next video once you yep. told me about that. And I'm fascinated with what I found out. It is, it's unbelievably conclusive that what hearing loss is and how to take care of it. And it's very hopeful from what I'm seeing as far as being able to reverse that. As far as what hearing loss is, if you, I'm just trying to think how deep I want to go with this. The mechanisms of hearing, it's actually not that complicated. It can be, like I said, if you look really deep into it. But I mean, the shape of your outer ear is a pretty fascinating piece of engineering. That's a marvel in and of itself. It collects the sound and drives it into your auditory tube towards your eardrum. And it also lets you know where the sound's coming from because of all the angles, which is kind of fascinating. And once it reaches the eardrum, the eardrum's like a thin membrane. And then behind the eardrum, this is another marvel of engineering. There are three bones, the tiniest bones in your bodies. The malus, the incus, and stapes, I believe they're called. So it kind of works like a lever with the drum itself. So the sound waves come in and they make contact with your eardrum, and then through this leverage, through these three tiny bones, that actually amplifies the sound 22 times greater than when it came in. And then it transfers it to an organelle in your ear called the cochlea, and it basically looks like a snail. It's kind of like a fractal. It's pretty interesting. And it's filled with water. And so that's the purpose of the eardrum, which is like stage two of your hearing process, amplifying that sound and transferring it to the water within the cochlea. And now those sound waves are traveling through the liquid in the cochlea. And the next step is when they come in contact with these little hair cells inside your cochlea. In studies, they call it auditory hair cells. But if you really look at anatomy, it's called stereocilia. So they're basically these tiny hair cells in your ear. And that is the critical juncture. That's the weakest link in hearing because the sound waves, when they reach those hair cells, are converted into neurons or into neurotransmitters and at the base of those hair cells are your neurons so that is the juncture where like physical sound is converted into electrical signals they go travel up your neurons to your brain and then you hear if you think of that like a series circuit all these things have to go right in order for it to happen if somebody like god forbid if you got hit in the head with like a bat or something that could damage those little bones and so you could have physical trauma that could damage hearing but the weakest link in this hearing process that is damaged by whether you're at a concert and you hear something that's too loud, age-related hearing loss is another one, and also certain drugs, chemotherapy, like I don't have the exact number, but it's in my book. A high number of people when they get chemotherapy and an even higher number who get radiotherapy go instantly deaf. And it's because these little tiny hair cells are the weakest link and so basically anyone who's having hearing problems, that is the most likely culprit right there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so as far as like mainstream goes, a hearing doctor will tell you that these cannot be regenerated. They say that in some studies and yet 
There are contradictory studies showing that it can be. They've tested before going to a concert. They've tested after going to, or loud noise exposure, rather, administering antioxidants to a person, and that prevents hearing loss by preserving those hair cells. And then, interestingly, there have been studies as well with using red and near-infrared light, and not only does it protect from hearing damage when administered before or even after, it also can regrow these stereocilia hair cells. So as far as regenerating the hair cells, the most promising way to do that so far that I've seen in the scientific literature is red light. Hmm. Yeah, man, that is a great breakdown. And I appreciate you doing that research just because I mentioned it to you. And I do think that's my issue, nerve damage to the hairs of the cochlea. So when I heard about how effective red light therapy is for regrowing hair, ding, 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 I thought, hey, maybe this is worth looking at. And this aspect of it facilitating hair growth actually comes up as an unintended consequence sometimes in these reports I've seen where women have used it to get rid of acne. And of course, we all have these little peach fuzz hairs on our face. And unfortunately, those grow. So they're saying, yeah, red light healed my acne, but now I'm the wolf man over here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm half kidding. It's not that bad, but no woman wants hair to grow on their face, or at least most don't. Hey, it is 2019. But because of that effect, I thought I should check it out. And I found a doctor in the Netherlands who uses red light therapy for hearing loss. He sells a device that you can wear that just shines the light in your ear. And he does his sessions or his treatments over Skype, so I wouldn't even need to take a big expensive trip. And I'm really jazzed up about pursuing this further because I'm really becoming a believer in this sort of thing. I'm finally starting to understand how it can logically actually produce these results, which has been kind of a big hurdle for me. And, you know, I'm a somewhat public figure, so let's test it out. I'm fortunate enough to have a real condition worth trying it on. So I'll be the guinea pig for it. Let's take a shot. So we'll see what happens. But to get back to your work, after you released the Red Light Therapy book, you got a lot of feedback from people and added four chapters to your second edition as a result. And the feedback you got really mirrors what I hear from my listeners on episodes like these. They want the practical step-by-step -step instructions for using this therapy at home. So what can you tell them? Yeah, absolutely. When I wrote it, I don't know. I guess at the time, like, this is the best book ever written on red light therapy. People are going to love it. And there'll be, hopefully, somebody will say something that I can improve, but it probably won't be too much. It's pretty thorough. <laughs> and then I got all this feedback, and boy, was I wrong about that. There was a lot of things that I didn't include in it. But I specifically asked when I wrote it, you know, if there's anything that I didn't teach in this book, please let me know. And in the second edition, I will add it. And I'm at third edition now. So I've added a whole bunch of things that people were looking for. and feels like a pretty solid book. I don't think I missed much. It's got over 250 studies. And as far as treatment at home goes, that's a big one because some people have even tried to treat through their clothes. So not knowing that red light doesn't travel through clothes, for example, can have a huge effect. That could be the difference between getting amazing results and literally none because your clothes blocked it. So that's the first thing I would say. Make sure you are treating on bare skin. And it's also important to know that, I don't know, say you have arthritis in your hands and you want to treat that. I had a woman actually who was using it for that and she didn't get really very significant results at all. So I kind of asked her how she was doing it. And this is one of the case studies in the book. 
she was saying like basically she was sitting at a table and she had the light face down on her hand, which was flattened out on the table and the light was directly on top of it. Well, that's pretty good. But I mean, at the same time, you're kind of wasting a lot of light. So what I recommended was that she would go on her side, remove as much clothing as possible and kind of put your hand that you want to treat right on your stomach, curl up in kind of a fetal position and then put the light, rest it beside you about a foot away. So that way you're literally reaching every cell from your neck, basically to your knees and including your hand. And so that way you're getting more of a full body treatment. You'll get a lot more of an effect. So I think the biggest mistake people make is that they just treat the local area. Like I said, we're kind of ingrained to this idea that a symptom is localized to a certain area, but really it's a whole systemic issue. So what I always recommend for people that they do is not only do they treat the area specifically, but also do a full body treatment as well in that fetal position with the light beside you. That way you don't have to hold it as well and you can deliver the light to as many cells as possible. Good advice. And I think sometimes the researchers like yourself kind of gloss over how much hand-holding the average person really needs because you've done the research and you've found this stuff and you're like, oh man, if I just give people the breadcrumbs, clearly they're going to be able to carry it the rest of the way. But there's always those fundamental questions of, well, which specific thing do I buy and what specific thing do I do? And it's like, well, you know, take this knowledge, the broad basket of information and take it forward, people. You know, you can do some of this yourself. <laughs> but I think that's great advice on how to get started. Thanks. Yeah. And also another interesting thing is since near infrared is actually invisible, see the range, like I said, for your vision is like four to 700 nanometers, but near infrared is 700 nanometers to 1500 nanometers. So that's beyond what your eyes can see. So interestingly, a lot of people get these devices and they're like, six of the LEDs are not working. So I get these emails all the time of people thinking that their device is broken. So it's kind of a pain. I have a canned answer saved on a doc file whenever I get that. But what I tell them is that if you take out your cell phone, most cell phones and other cameras can see near infrared. So if you look at the lights, which appear to be off through your red light or through your camera, rather, you will see that they are on. So that's an interesting thing that I learned as well. <laughs> that is funny. And there are a ton of red light therapy products on the market and it can get overwhelming to play devil's advocate for people, but you do sell three models of your own, a small, a medium, and a full body. Can you talk to us about the choices you made in choosing what to consider to be the best features and wavelengths and ranges compared to other things people could get? Yeah, so in all of our devices, I actually have four wavelengths, and this has been found in scientific research. All four of these wavelengths have been found to be the most readily absorbed by the cytochrome C oxidase enzyme in cells. We haven't even got to that mechanism yet, actually. But that's the specific enzyme that absorbs red light, which upregulates its activity, increases ATP production. So in this study, it found that the four particular wavelengths of light that are most absorbed by cytochrome C oxidase are 620 nanometers, 670, both of which are red, and then 760 and 830 nanometers, which are near infrared. So all our devices contain those four specific wavelengths, and that's why I chose those. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was an important point because 
I don't want people to get some product that only incorporates half of those things and then not have results and dismiss this entire field of research. As we said earlier, 50,000 studies, it's no small thing. And uh, man, Mark, I really appreciate your work and the mission you're on. It's a noble thing. I hope you're getting the recognition you deserve. You're very giving with your information. Of course, everyone needs to make a living, but just by signing up for your email list, people can get three free eBooks. Maybe tell us a bit about that and also the giveaway you wanted to utilize today. Uh, yeah, so the three free eBooks that you get, one is from, it's a chapter from my cancer industry book. It is Chemotherapy versus Cancer. Basically, my attempt to find and compile everything there is to know about it. And there are hundreds of studies in it. Another book you get is on sodium bicarbonate, which is a chapter from my Cancer the Metabolic Disease book. That's exploring its medicinal properties and what it can do for your health. And then the third one is a dose guide for red light therapy, which will give you, according to all the research, the exact doses and treatment times that you need for various specific diseases and conditions to treat them most effectively. Right on. Yes, I think that's great information. People should check it out. It is free. And so we also wanted to talk about this red light giveaway. Uh, yeah, so I decided to give away free red lights. I got five of them for five lucky winners on the <laughs> Higher Sides Chat podcast. And if you go to endalldisease.com slash contest, that is where you can sign up. And I think it'll be a week or two long contest. We'll draw the winners and get those shipped out to you so you can try the therapy for yourself right away. Nice. Yes, that's very awesome. Because there is a, a little bit of time in between the recording of these shows and the release of them, when the show releases, I guess it'll run for about a week and it's just going to be people can sign up and then it'll be like a raffle kind of thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Well, that is exciting. I'm sure people will appreciate that. I guess one more question I had about red light therapy is that you do talk about how most of the studies are with laser light, not LEDs, because we didn't have LEDs yet. However, lasers are thousands of dollars and LEDs are hundreds of dollars. Is there a difference in therapeutic value that's been tested? Is it fair to think that we get the same results with a different type of light? Well, the medical community would love you to think so, because I think what we're going to see going forward is a lot more doctors buying expensive multiple thousand dollar red laser equipment and machines and then they can offer you red light therapy of course because it's amazing its benefit are pretty much undeniable at this point so either get on board or lose money is kind of their option but ever since with the advent of leds now we are able to for literally like 10 percent of the price buy small devices that are inexpensive and at least as effective and actually in some ways they're safer applying red laser light to your eyes there has been evidence that that can cause damage but leds the all the evidence i've seen points to only benefiting your eyes i've had a lot of testimonials a number of testimonials and some evidence and studies that i've put together in a presentation as well showing that that it can improve your vision if you shine the led version of red and near infrared into your eyes hmm. yeah really interesting stuff and <laughs> right on, man. Again, this has been a really great time. Endalldisease.com is the website. People should check it out to learn more. Anything else you want to leave them with? That's a good question. 
Yeah, I guess the big thing, I just want to lay one more thing out about cancer. This won't take long at all, is the industry and the government is committed to this idea of cancer that it is some kind of like monster cell, like a Frankenstein or Darth Vader type cell that it <laughs> mutates and it's all of a sudden it's trying to kill you. No scientific evidence ever has suggested that, yet the industry is completely committed to that because that's the only way you can justify the use of knives, poisons, and ionizing radiation on people. If they were to admit the cancer cell is what it is, which is a damaged cell, a cell with damaged metabolism, then the whole industry would crumble. So that is, I think, my biggest message, the biggest lie or misconception being perpetrated and put forth that a lot of people believe. And I would love to dissolve that. So that's my message. <laughs> well said. I love it. And this has been a real pleasure. Thanks for doing what you do. Take care out there and check back with us on your Earthship journey. Maybe we can do a show about that in the future when you, uh, you know, really get that thing going. Because that sounds super interesting, too. And I think it's the place most of us need to go. Decentralization, as you said, and self-reliance. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show, Greg. You got it. Take care, man. You too. Mm-mm. Holy naked mole rat, Batman. Roxanne, you go ahead and turn on that red light. Mark Sloan. <laughs> Bringing the heat. Really interesting stuff. And another guest who has dug deeply into a subject based on how they were personally affected by the big machine. It's a strange bittersweet feeling because you don't want anyone to suffer a loss like this. But to see what blossoms out of that is pretty impressive. Obviously, red light therapy was the star of the show, but the information about cancer and CO2 was really interesting, and the CO2 stuff was pretty unexpected. I'm not surprised. It does make sense. I just hadn't given it much thought before. Of course, Randall Carlson, both times he was on THC, rallied hard against the man-made climate change agenda and this idea that CO2 is destroying the planet. And one of the main arguments was, no, plants eat CO2, which I think a lot of us know. But I could also confirm from my weed-growing days that people who have the money and want that top-shelf bud, they often put a CO2 tank in the room. But it sounds like something to dig into more. I wonder if sparkling water has any sort of effect from that perspective. It is CO2 that carbonates that. Either way, I would love to try breathing through one of those mixed CO2 oxygen devices and see if I have an easier time doing something strenuous like Mark seemed to. I also think at this point I am going to buy a red light panel. Probably from Mark because I trust his level of detailed research. And I hope some of you guys participate in his contest. I think that's really cool of him because these things sell for like 100 bucks a piece and he's going to be giving away five of them. I'm interested to hear from whoever wins and get filled in on if you have any positive results from using it. I've been hearing a lot of people saying they use them for their meditation time, which makes sense. If you're just going to be sitting there for 15 minutes, might as well do the two birds, one stone thing. But I am proud of this one. Another good health show on the books. I think the health show portion of the THC portfolio is filling out quite nicely. I know we're not a health show, but it is a branch on the tree. And I think about what pushes us forward. Do we really need another show breaking down the latest mass shooting? 
Or did we cover that over a dozen times with many different events in the past? And we can just kind of apply that template to newer ones if we start to think things look fishy. And again, what does that really do for you and your family? Yes, I'm skeptical of any far and wide news story, and especially mass shootings, and especially when witnesses say there were two decked-out black ops shooters, and then they left and put some spaced-out, mind-controlled kid at the scene. I know that story by now. And this is a bit of a tactic on my part, because these shooting shows are the ones being targeted by the censorship crackdown, not necessarily health information. But health information is fresher and more useful, and I think the biggest conspiracy is to keep us ignorant and sick. And so there. (laughs) Big thanks to Brian for looking up a little bit on hearing as well. We'll see if anything comes together there. But it seems like there might be a sliver, little sliver, of hope for me. In THC News, the last joint session is up to watch for plus people. It was a lot of fun. Some quality calls. I actually did get connected with YouTube this time, which just helps to notify more people that it's happening and increase the participation. And I also got video implemented for the callers, which is a new thing. So it's coming together piece by piece, but the YouTube connection is always going to be a roll of the dice and it works or it doesn't depending on the status of the Higher Side Chats channel. I know some people have complained that they don't find it easy to be aware of when the next one is, and in fact, the new website design is going to have a place right on the front page where I can put the date of the next one and it will just display easily for everyone. There will be no guesswork. And I know, I know, I keep talking about this website redesign, but any major changes can be rocky, and it's best if you're just aware that we're in a little bit of flux. And people might say, why fix what isn't broken? Why have plus people now go to thehiresidechats.com when they've been going to thehiresidechatsplus.com for so long? The information is in all the past shows. Why change things? It seems like it's just an unnecessary complication. 80% of the listeners don't even go to the website. They're listening on YouTube or on podcasting apps. So why even fuck with it? Well, it's just because there are internet standards out there. They affect Google rankings. They affect shareability. And not just Google rankings, but if their algorithms see that different websites are posting the same content, like the regular and the plus show, They consider it an attempt to game the system, and they will call it a private blog network, and you'll become unsearchable. Regular people have no reason to need to know this, but a person in my position should. And with all these situations, there's not really an appeals process if you get marked with the kiss of death. And that's just one of about a dozen technical reasons to do it. Now that I've been working with this team, they're telling me things that I didn't know and pointing out some places where I have holes in my game from all these sort of technical perspectives. So we're restructuring in a big way now and adding convenient and more streamlined functionality. 
but I wouldn't go through the mental stress of a change like this if I didn't sort of have to, to be more future-proof and just stay with the times. I'm sure we've been to some THC guests websites in the past and thought, man, is it 95? You got to stay hip. You got to stay relevant. <laughs> but anyway, Jesus, that said, of course, every episode I put out for the people has a second hour. If they become plus members, five extra hours of shows a month and other stuff here and there. You know how it goes. Help me help you. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com. In this one, we talked about how red light therapy works with cancer specifically, J. Marion Sims and the Italian history of cancer surgery, the high false and overdiagnosis rates in cancer screenings, and the great prostate hoax. God, that is crazy. I saw another book on the subject called Invasion of the Prostate Snatchers by an author who also wrote a book on rune magic. So I've definitely got that book marked, but man, that thread about prostate cancer is so eye-opening and just scary, really. Stop getting tested. Seems like a weird thing to say, but I'm kind of not telling you what to do, but I'm not going in for that test. Anyway, we also talked about enhanced memory and brain function from red light therapy Mark's thoughts on diet and THC's recent episode with Dr. Stephen Hussey, easy water, cells, and red light therapy, and also Mark's research into free energy technologies. That could be a show on its own, but I love that he's putting that on his website as well. All good stuff, all valuable information. Big thanks again to Mark for sharing his work with us. Go get his free ebooks. Go enter the contest for a free red light from his store. And take care out there. I've done my part. Your move, monsters of the medical monopoly, health hazard promoters, and controllers of the cancer conspiracy. Your Maybe you'll see. Goddamn this plan. No fan spraying. On me, cronies Don't you know they control the weather With all the chemicals that they spray Oh no, it go, it gone Bye-bye, bye-bye I think, I sink, and I die Don't you know they control
the sun.